Well, good morning, Life Church. Merry Christmas. The first king of Israel was the kind of king the people wanted, but not the kind of king the people needed. He was tall, he was strong, he was handsome. He looked like the kind of king who could win a battle on behalf of his people, win a war for the sake of his people, and that is exactly what the people of Israel wanted. When the people of Israel went to the prophet Samuel and said, find us a king like the nations, what they were really acknowledging was a deeply rooted insecurity in their hearts. They thought all the other nations around them were better than they were because they had mighty kings who could lead their armies in battle, and Israel insecure about who the God promised, who God promised to be for them. They asked Samuel, find us a king like the nations. Samuel reluctantly relented, and he brought them Saul. And Saul was handsome. He was strong. He was tall. He looked like the kind of leader Israel wanted. He was not the kind of leader Israel needed. The beginning of King Saul's reign went fairly well, but that was short-lived. Ultimately, at its root, Saul's problem is the fact that he feared the people more than he feared the Lord. He cared more about what other people thought about him than he cared about what the Lord thought about him. And that led him to rash and impulsive decisions as he tried to maintain the favor of God's people. As a result of that, God took the mantle of kingship away from Saul and promised it to another. The first king of Israel, the kind of king Israel wanted, not the kind of king Israel needed. The second king of Israel, the day the prophet Samuel first entered the city of Bethlehem, the little town of Bethlehem, David was nowhere near his father Jesse's home. Jesse had sent David away to uh, shepherd his flocks in the field because Jesse was sure that if any of his eight sons were to be king, it would be one of the older seven because they looked more like kings. They were older. They were stronger. They were more capable leaders in Jesse's mind. And so Samuel entered Jesse's house and one by one he lined up Jesse's sons and asked the Lord, is this the second king of Israel? And one by one the Lord told Samuel the prophet, no. In exasperation, maybe in desperation, Samuel said, Jesse, is this really all of your sons? Is this the best you can do? And Jesse reluctantly admitted, well, there is one more. And he sent to his fields and brought David in. And the minute David entered into Jesse's house, something stirred in the heart of Samuel the prophet. This is what the Bible says. It says that David was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And then when he walked in, the Lord said to Samuel the prophet, arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is the king that I choose. And right then and there, Samuel anointed David with oil, indicating that he would be the second king of Israel. Would he be the king that Israel needed? Well, as king, David accomplished much. He led Israel to defeat the nations that threatened God's people. He secured Israel's borders. He even established the city of Jerusalem as the central place where all of God's people could gather to worship him. And one day, David promised to build God a house, a temple in that great city of Jerusalem. But God actually corrected David and he said, no, no, 
I'm going to build you a house. But God did not mean a physical building. He meant a family, really, a dynasty. God promised David that someone from David's family line would sit on David's throne forever. God promised David that a king from among David's sons would rule in perfect righteousness and peace and justice over God's people forever. He promised that God would establish a kingdom of peaceful prosperity. And many people heard that and they assumed that David was that king. They assumed that David was the king they needed the king who would bring peace and prosperity, justice and righteousness to God's people. But the story in 2 Samuel 11 tells us the story about David's greatest failure. It's actually one of the greatest leadership disasters and one of the greatest abuses of power in known history. On its surface, what happens in 2 Samuel 11 is far worse than anything that the first king of Israel did. It was springtime. When kings go off to war, the chapter opens. But King David, he stayed home. Instead of going to war on behalf of his people, he sent his best general, a man named Joab. He sent Joab to fight Israel's enemies while David stayed home and did nothing. And then one afternoon, David saw something that he wanted, but something that he couldn't have. Something that he wanted, but something that belonged to someone else. We've all been there, right? It might happen later today or tomorrow morning, right? A brother or sister might open a gift underneath the tree and the second you see it, your heart's going to cry out, whoa, I really want that myself. But it's not going to be yours. It's going to belong to them. That we know we can't have it. We'll grumble in our hearts because someone else has what we want. And that's exactly what happened to David, except it wasn't a thing that he saw and wanted for himself. It was a person Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was one of David's closest friends. He was one of David's mighty men. That means that Uriah had been right next to David through all of the battles that David had fought that had secured peace and prosperity for Israel. For years, Uriah had been next to David, fighting with him, fighting for him. And even at this moment, Uriah is away at the war where David should have been. Uriah is away at the war, fighting with Joab, fighting still for David. But David... He was home that springtime and he saw Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and she was beautiful. David saw her and he took her as his own. When a child was conceived in Bathsheba's womb, she sent word to David, a desperate word, I imagine. Bathsheba had done nothing wrong. It was David who had sinned, but now there were consequences that she could not deal with on her own. What would she do? What would David do? Well, first... David tried to cover up his sin through deception. He called Uriah back from the battle. He hoped that Uriah would visit his wife and that his sin would be concealed through deception. But Uriah was too honorable. Second, David tried to cover up his sin by murder. He sent Uriah to the front lines of the battle where he was sure to be killed in the fighting. He told Joab, when the fighting is most intense, most fierce, Have everyone else draw back, but lead Uriah up so that Uriah is killed. Joab followed his king's instructions. As expected, Uriah died, fighting David's war, concealing David's sin. David then took Bathsheba as his wife, believing that he had covered up his sin. 
The New Testament tells us that the wages of sin is death. In this case, the wages of David's sin with Bathsheba was Uriah's death. Yet David was glad to pay that wage so that no one, he thought, would know, so that no one would find out what he had done, so that he could have Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, as his own. But the Lord showed Nathan the prophet what David had done. And Nathan went to David to expose his sin and to summon him to repentance. Nathan said to David, let me tell you a story. And then in this story, he described a man, a man who had everything, everything that he could want, success, power, wealth, thousands and thousands of sheep. This man had a neighbor who was quite poor. In fact, he had no livestock except for this one little lamb. He loved that lamb like a daughter. But the rich man, he wanted this lamb for his feast. He didn't want to kill one of his own lambs. He wanted to kill his neighbor's lamb, even though this was only one and very precious to him. So this rich man took the little lamb that belonged to his neighbor, the little lamb his neighbor loved so much. He took it, and he slaughtered it, and he ate it. And when King David heard this story told to him by the prophet Nathan, he was furious. He rose up in righteous anger, and he said, this man deserves to die. And the prophet Nathan looked at David, and he said, you are that man. And when Nathan said that to David, I imagine the blood drained from David's face because he knew. He knew that Nathan was right, that he, David, had sinned, taking what wasn't his, though he already had everything he could have needed. The realization of his own sin, it pierced David straight through, all the way to his heart, desperate for forgiveness and sincere in repentance. David cried out, He said, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The Lord, in his scandalous grace, forgave this scandalous sinner. Though David's sin was great, the Lord's mercy was greater still. In his kind and tender mercy, the Lord wrapped his arms around this rebellious king. The baby, born from adultery, grew sick and died. But there was still grace. David was forgiven by the Lord. David married Bathsheba, and they went on to have more children. One of those children was Israel's third king, King Solomon. Now, the first king of Israel, the king people wanted, not the king people needed. The second king of Israel, not the king the people needed. Maybe Solomon would be that king, the third king of Israel. If David was Israel's greatest human king, then Solomon was Israel's wisest human king. Right? Because of Solomon's wisdom, Israel and Jerusalem, they flourished at first. Solomon, he built the temple that David had promised to the Lord. The city's prosperity multiplied under Solomon's rule. And rulers from all over came to hear the wisdom of Solomon because his wisdom was so widely known. Among the nation, people heard just how wise Israel's king was. And and many people thought, well, surely this is the king that we need. This is the king that was promised who would come from David's house, the king who will establish God's kingdom forever. Surely Solomon is that man. Yet Solomon had his laws and his faults too. His many wives worshipped many gods, and soon those idols drew even Solomon's heart away from the one true God. Solomon proved that he was not the king Israel needed. And so then came Israel's fourth king, Solomon's son, Rehoboam. 
during King Rehoboam's rule, the kingdom of Israel was actually split in two. After that, Israel and Judah, two separate nations, had two kings, not one. And over the generations that would follow, a few of those kings were godly and good. Most were wicked. None of those kings proved to be the king that Israel needed. And the kingdom of Israel descended into darkness. Faithless kings led faithless people. Idolatrous leaders led more and more people into more and more idolatry. Israel became a dim and dark place, a place where the light of God's word was dimmed by the sin of God's people. And the prophets, they cried out, urging Israel to turn back to the Lord. They said to God's people, O house of Jacob, come, let's walk in the light of the Lord. The people refused, and they were plunged further into darkness. And many wondered, What about God's promise to David? Will ever a king from David's line reign on David's throne in righteousness and peace? Will ever light shine again in the darkness? They say it's always darkest just before the dawn. Matthew 1, 1 begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what Matthew is saying is that in the coming of Jesus, true light has dawned. He's saying in the coming of Jesus, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. He's saying the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He's saying the years before the first Christmas Eve, They were the storm before the calm, the dark before the dawn. He's saying, but now, because of that first Christmas Eve, the true light has shone, just as the the prophet promised. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. But there's more. And this is really the most incredible part. The thing that we've been trying to just set before ourselves week after week through this Advent season. It's remarkable the people that Matthew chooses to include in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Especially remarkable are the women that Matthew chooses to include in that genealogy. Now kids, I want to talk to you just for a second, if I can. Um, I just use a big fancy word. You can see it on the screen behind me. It's the word genealogy. Maybe that's a word you don't know. That's okay if you don't. It's a word that talks about your family tree. And so every once in a while, your parents might think about their family tree. That means a big picture of all of your aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. And if your parents get really into it, if they really nerd out, then they're going to map out what that family tree looks like for several generations. Maybe to your great-great-grandparents or great-great-great-grandparents, something like that. Now, I've been trying to teach your parents this for four weeks now. I don't know if they're getting it, but you're going to get it really fast. Here, here's the point, the thing that we've been trying to learn this Christmas season, right? When Matthew tells us about the family tree of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, he's showing us something so remarkable about who he is and why he came. He's showing us from the kind of people he came from, just the kind of people he came for. Now, Matthew, he draws Jesus' family tree back like 42 generations. So we're talking about you can't count the great, great, greats in front of the grandparents anymore, right? He's showing us all of Jesus' ancestors back into deep, deep history. 
And over the last few weeks, we've been thinking about the women that are included in that really long family tree. Women like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, and this morning we've added Bathsheba. We've been learning their stories. And those stories are compelling. But what's most compelling about them, and what Matthew's really saying here, is that all these stories, they're really part of one bigger story. One bigger story that involves Bathsheba and David, but it's not about Bathsheba and David. One bigger story that involves Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, but it's really not about Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. Now, Matthew is telling us that all these stories combine to tell us the biggest story, the story of God saving his people from their sin, the story that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, that shows us how God has been working to bring us back into fellowship with him, to form a people from the family of Abraham, to send a king from David's line to rule on David's throne in righteousness and peace forever. Not necessarily the king that we would have wanted, the king that we absolutely have needed. The story of God bringing people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language to be part of his spiritual family forever so that together we might worship him around his throne forever. And boys and girls and moms and dads and everyone else, right? Even Bathsheba's story is part of that greater story. Because as we just read, Bathsheba, she's here in this story. But I want you to notice one more thing. I think this is incredible. This is Matthew 1.6. When Matthew is unpacking for us the genealogy of Jesus and he wants to include Bathsheba in Jesus' family line, notice he says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of of Uriah. Do you notice the fact that Matthew does not try to hide the scandal? Right? He doesn't have to include Bathsheba at all. But let's say maybe he just wants to include Bathsheba. And so he would say, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. And if you read just verses prior to that, that's how he has mentioned every other woman in this story. He's mentioned her by name. But here, Matthew doesn't do that. He says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Right? He's acknowledging, even drawing attention to, the scandal of Jesus' family history. He's showing us one more time the kind of people Jesus came from reveals the kind of people Jesus came for. Jesus came for scandalous sinners to reveal his scandalous grace. This Christmas Eve, we will continue to sing of the coming of our King. We'll continue to long for his coming again. We'll think about true light shining in darkness. And we'll light candles together. Not simply because of tradition, but because we want to symbolize the fact that the light of Christ has been passed on to us. Jesus called himself the light of the world. But then he said to us, his people, you are the light of the world. And so we will light candlelight and we'll go from here into a still darkened world, shining the light of Christ and longing for his return. But before we do those things, let me just offer three brief truths that we can cling to in light of the genealogy of Jesus. Truths that we can cling to, especially when the world seems darkest. Number one, The genealogy of Jesus reveals that no one is beyond God's saving reach. If God can save Rahab, the prostitute, he can save anyone. 
If God can bring the product of Judah's incestuous relationship with Tamar into his family, then he can bring anyone into his family. And if Ruth the Moabite and the wife of Uriah the Hittite have a place in Jesus' family tree, then anyone can have a place in Jesus' spiritual family. Perhaps this is the most enduring lesson that the mothers of Jesus teach us. And as we reflect on the lives of these mothers of Jesus, May we know, may we believe, may we remember, right? If God can save these women, he can save anyone. He can save us. And he can save the friend or family member we've been praying for and hurting for. These stories show us that no one is beyond his reach. Secondly, the genealogy of Jesus reveals that nothing is beyond God's providential hand. It is clear from these stories that God is the one who's been writing this one big story. From before the foundation of the earth, he's been writing the story of the redemption that he would accomplish through his son Jesus. And he wrote that story to include Tamar, to include Rahab, to include the sorrow and the suffering of Ruth on the plains of Moab, and to include even the adultery of David and the affair with Bathsheba. Right? God used those things to accomplish his purpose. And if that's possible, then that means God can and does use all things to accomplish his purpose. Nothing is outside of his grip. Nothing is beyond his hand. And so there is no random or accidental event. God wastes nothing. He wastes no pain. At this moment, he's working in your life in a thousand ways. Perhaps you can perceive three of them. But God is at work because nothing is beyond his providential hand. And thirdly, lastly today, no past sin, no trial, no trauma disqualifies you from God's present or future purposes. Never assume that what you've done or what you've been through or even what's been done to you, never assume that your history is so sordid and messy that God cannot use you. I mean, think about Bathsheba one final time this morning. If Bathsheba's story had been written today in the hashtag MeToo era, right, Bathsheba would have accused David of what he had done, perhaps. David would have been canceled immediately and persecuted immediately after that. And then Bathsheba, like if she was really courageous and brave, she would have made the rounds, right? Like visiting all the talk shows. She would have been this leading advocate for abuse victims everywhere because that's what she is in this story. Instead, Bathsheba, the abuse victim, she's invited to marry King David after the death of her husband. You know, the guy who took advantage of her and then murdered her husband to try to cover it up. Can you imagine a more painful and sorrowful and shameful life than the one Bathsheba was called to live? Yet the sorrow and pain and shame They don't disqualify Bathsheba from God's redemptive work. Clearly, God still uses Bathsheba in that redemptive work, which means nothing disqualifies us from God's present or future work through us. Church, you and I, we have failed. We've sinned. We've been sinned against. Our stories are marked by things we would do differently, by things we'd never do again, and by things that have been done to us. Some of us have even been in Bathsheba's shoes. 
But God can still use us. He does still use us. If he can use Bathsheba to establish the line of King Jesus, then he can use us to shine the light of our king into the darkness. The kind of people Jesus came from reveals the kind of people Jesus came for. He came from Bathsheba, which means he came for you and me. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to see just how much we are like these mothers of Jesus. I pray that you help us to see our need, our brokenness, our sin, our shame. I pray that these things wouldn't be hidden from us. I pray uh, that no circumstance, no measure of personal godliness or holiness, no level of morality, no commitment to good deeds or justice, no clean life. I pray that nothing would conceal from us our need for King Jesus. And then I pray, God, that nothing would conceal from us the truth that you have worked in all of history to bring us, not the king that we want, but the king that we need. May we respond to him on this Christmas Eve and every day, bowing before him in worship, declaring to the nations that he is the worthy one true king. May we go into our lives shining the light of Christ for all to see. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.